Yeah. Ask a question about court's requirements. Yes. Um, I guess I don't get how I'm supposed to be preparing for the final exam. Read. I know, but if I read now, I'm going. To, I'm still going to forget a lot of stuff by the time we get to April. Like, Reread. <laughs> I guess you give me an idea of what types of questions you're going to ask. Um, about the poems, you'll write your answers. <laughs> <laughs> Should I have certain, like, if I like... Okay, who's taken an exam from me so far? Do you want to say? The, the poems that we cover in class are going to be the things that are on the exam. He's not trying to trick you. It'll... Oh, last, last time, well, last time <laughs> was, I took poetry with you, it was like this. And you would give poems and we had to identify who wrote it and what it was about. Yeah. So we have to say who wrote poems. <laughs> <laughs> Um, who, basically the exam is an incentive for you to do the reading um, and I know that you don't need such an incentive but there are people sometimes who do and they would be the ones not here today um, so it's not I feel that I have a pretty decent idea of what people can be expected to remember for an exam. Um, so if you do the reading and then you sort of remind yourself, uh, do you have to reread everything? That would be a lot. Wouldn't be that much actually, but um, it would be a decent amount. Um, but if you do all the reading now and then um, remind yourself of what the poems are like, what the poets are like, um, that would be the main thing you would want to do for the exam. What the exams tend to be is uh, short, what I tend to do on exams is short answer questions, um, longer answer questions, like, like short answers are you could answer in three words. People tend to write sentences, but they don't have to. Um, longer answers, which are two or three sentences, and which tend to be identify the quotation sort of things, and then essay questions. So. For it's it's usually though not always precisely the case that the shorter answer questions are stuff that we've spent time on in class um, and they reward um, alertness, not just looking alert but being alert in class um, and the um, paragraph long um, questions sort of are will probably you will do well on them if you have a sense and this is something you could get from reviewing if you have a sense of the difference between the poets that we're doing so that you have a decent sense that you could recognize one from another and just have a sense of their poetic personality um, the sort of thing that Wyatt does the sort of thing that Surrey does the sort of thing that Skelton does I can't imagine that you would have any trouble telling Skelton from Surrey right now. Um, you might have some trouble telling Wyatt from Surrey, um, but then if you were having trouble telling Wyatt from Surrey on an exam, um, you would also be saying why you thought this poem was by Wyatt, even though it was actually by Surrey or vice versa. And to say, okay, I think this poem is, <coughs> you know, something that you would get a lot of partial credit for is an answer that went something like, I think this poem is by Sari, although I don't remember. Um, I know we read it. Um, 
but I don't remember. But what makes me think it was by... I'm sorry, I, th- I think this poem is by Wyatt, although I don't remember what makes me think of it that it's by Wyatt is the roughness of the meter, for example. Um, this line, which it's very hard to turn into standard iambic pentameter. Now, if you were wrong and it were that poem were actually by Sari, you would still get a lot of credit for um, the thing that made you think it was by Wyatt, the thing that made it sound like Wyatt to you, the thing that made it sound Wyatt-like to you. Um, you would get credit for that, um, not full credit, but probably fuller credit than someone who just said Wyatt whatever, um, but didn't give any justification for why they thought it was Wyatt. And um, then the essay questions will be essentially uh, give you lots of scope to say things that have occurred to you in the course of the course um, about the subjects which will, all, which will inevitably be broad enough that um, you can twist them to your liking um, in the essay that you write, the way one does twist essay questions to one's liking. Um, so I don't think I've actually said anything to you except to reassure you by saying that, because that's like, oh, but the, you, you don't take English classes, is that right? Yeah, this is my first one. Oh, so, and what are you majoring in? Anthropology. Well, it's the same thing. <laughs> what, do you get, what do they do in anthropology exams? Well, we, I actually usually don't have exams. I usually just have essays. They don't give you exams? No. Huh, someone should do an anthropological study. <laughs> but of course, they could never get to rigor in that because not giving exams, they don't engage in rigorous practice. Oh, well. <laughs> um, joke. J slash <laughs> K. Uh, <coughs> okay. Um, you know what KOS stands for? Kid over shoulder. Your parents will never tell you that, but if you see them, <laughs> if, if you see them like texting and suddenly they go KOS, it's because you're seeing what they're doing and they just don't want you to know. <laughs> <laughs> Lame laughing. So All, POS as well. That's parent over shoulder. Right. Yeah, that's standard. Oh, okay. Like that. That's so 1990s. Um, <laughs> Okay, uh, what do we think of Spencer? I was particularly interested, but I didn't want to put you on the spot, Emily, what you thought of the epithalamian. I didn't want to put you on the spot in Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. Oh, what I thought. Yeah. Um, wait, okay, I'm getting confused because there are a lot of them. Okay, that's the one where the, a Midsummer Night's Dream would have come to mind for you? Or for anyone? <laughs> okay, so imagine you're taking in an exam and you haven't done the reading. But why imagine it? Um, and then in the exam, um, you find on page 290 the following lines are what you're asked to to muse about in your exam. Where is this from? What's it related to? Etc. Um, lines 334 and following. Let no lamenting cries nor doleful tears be heard all night within nor yet without. Nay, let false whispers breeding hidden fears break gentle sleep with misconceived doubt. Let no deluding dreams nor dreadful sighs make sudden sad affrights. 
Nay, let house fires nor lightning's helpless harms. Nay, let the puck nor other evil sprites. Nay, let mischievous witches with their charms. Nay, let hobgoblins names whose sense we see not fray us with things that be not. Let not the screech owl nor the stork be heard nor the night raven that still deadly yells, nor damned ghosts called up with mighty spells, nor grisly vultures make us once afeard. Nay, let the unpleasant choir of frogs still croaking make us to wish their choking. Let none of these their dreary accents sing. Nay, let the woods them answer, nor their echo ring. Um, <coughs> so, you get that in exam, and what would you say about it? Yeah, Barbara. You said Midsummer Night's Dream. I also, when I read it. Why did I say Midsummer Night's Dream? Puck. Okay. <laughs> yeah, no, not everyone is going, Puck, duh, you're doing it. Oh. Who else is saying that? Okay, so like, like for four of you, it's done. For four of you, it's don't. Okay. Um, and then, like, the other things, like Hobgoblins, like that's in one of Puck's speeches, but I also thought of good. Uh, I also thought of um, uh, Macbeth because let not the screech owl. Uh huh. And that was fine. So it kind of uh, like obviously Midsummer, but also it made me think of um, all the Macbeth. M plays really. <laughs> Midsummer, Macbeth, Merchant of Venice, Merry Wives of Windsor, or some of them. Yeah. Gabriel. This might be a question, but is he really referenced, like, would this be like a common knowledge thing that he would be referencing for everyone, or, okay, I, yeah. I like, because when I was reading it, like, it reminded me a lot of the last kind of blessing that I think it's, I forget, I always forget their names, but Titania and Oberon mm -hmm. give over the human couple that I forget their names of, um, <laughs> like, after everything, like, comes together. Wait, so have then, you taken Shakespeare? Yes. Did you have an exam? <laughs> I took it first semester freshman year. Yeah. With I whom? Remember the quizzes, yeah, I don't remember oh, is that with me? Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. Okay, All right. there. Yeah. I was okay. trying to think. Ah, should give me an exam. Either. Just <laughs> All right, do you want quizzes every week, the way I did in Shakespeare? It wasn't every week. It was every play. <laughs> it was every, t every time you finished a play. Yeah. yeah. You want that? We don't have any plays, so we wouldn't need quizzes. <laughs> yeah, that's what you need an exam. Yeah. Sorry, I didn't interrupt. Oh, I'm sure not. Here we were having a really serious high-level discussion. Well, <laughs> you want to get us back reminds, to poetry? It <laughs> one of Midsummer uh, of, of Puck's last monologue, If We Spirits Have Offended, Think That This and All Is Mended, um, because... Um, he says, uh, let none of these their dreary accents sing, uh, nay, let the woods them answer, nor their echo ring. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's, it's about being affected by things that scare you. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's a warning, like, you know, these things might happen, but there's a difference between hearing them and taking them to heart. Right, yeah. So in, in A Midsummer Night's Dream, it's also, um, you mentioned oh, the goodness. screech owl in Macbeth. Where, you were in the Shakespeare class, too? Me? No. no. Okay. I was fucked and Lady Macbeth once, though. So. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, but it's also what Puck says in A Midsummer Night's Dream is, now is the time of night when the screech owl screeching loud puts the wretch that lies in woe in remembrance of a shroud. Um, so Shakespeare is almost certainly thinking of these um, lines when he writes Puck's last speech, in or second to last speech in A Midsummer Night's Dream. Oh, so this predates Shakespeare? Yeah. Okay. 
Um, they are roughly contempor contemporaries, but Spencer died when Shakespeare was really just getting going. Um, the Mutability Cantos, which you've read, right? What's the story of mutability, someone? This is why there's an exam. Uh, what is the story of the ape and the fox? Okay, so you read the first one. One person read the first bit of reading. Okay, what's the story? Um, ape and the fox. The ape is a. The ape wants to go to court, and he has the fox be his. Um, I want to say like sidekick, I guess. Uh -huh. Yeah. And the ape goes to the court, and he sees all the courtly activities, and he kind of gets inundated with the way that they do things and he ends up getting corrupted at the end and the fox steals things from all the other courtiers and then they end up getting kicked out of court. Yeah, the ape is corrupted from the start. He doesn't end up getting corrupted. I, I, think, I think there's like this progression where he gets even more into this like human aspects of the court and he just like... Gets yeah, he gets, he gets better and better at, at cheating people. Yeah. Um, but he's, he is corrupt from the start. Um, he is... Uh, and the point is, people at people at court who like that sort of person like that sort of person, um, and Spencer is pretty bitter about it. Um, and uh, this is actually a satire for what was going on in Queen Elizabeth's court at the time. Um, and Spencer was unhappy with what with a policy that one of Elizabeth's um, uh, advisors was um, promoting, and he represents that advisor as the fox. Um, so, but what's useful about just reading the, um, that bit of Mother Hubbard's tale, the whole tale is about the ape and the fox, what's useful about reading that bit of it is um, what Spencer has to say about poets there and what good poets do versus what versifiers do. Um, and they have very different um, ideas for what the right thing to, what, what poetry is for. And um, Spencer has very high and moralistic ideas of what poetry is for, at least he claims to. Whether he really does is another <coughs> question, um, as a couple of you know from taking Spencer and Martin. Um, right, Steve? And I see that um, Tony isn't here. Um, and he's read all this, Spencer. Why isn't he here? I don't know. Um, did we have an exam in that class? Yeah, yeah we had an exam in Spencer and Milton, yeah, didn't we? Yeah, yeah. All right. Um, okay, so one person read that. <laughs> Good. You're not. You're not saying no, no, no. I read it too. Um, so how much Spencer did we read? Not you, Gabriel, but everyone else. Any? <laughs> um, planning to read it for Wednesday? Were we? Totally. Totally. <laughs> um, okay, you know, it's, um, if necessary, we can just study the back of the cereal box. Um, but it's, no, it's really interesting. Sometimes cereal boxes get very metrical. Very Godardish. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> nice. Um, all right, you really, really, really should read we're not spending a lot of time on Spencer, but Spencer is one of the absolute greats of English poetry. And one reason we're not spending that much time on him is once you start spending time on Spencer, you never stop. 
Um, so you really should should read this. The Mother Hubbard's Tale is not going to blow you away, but the mutability cantos, I think, will. Um, you were nodding before, and you're nodding again, Sue. So what did you like about them? Mutability cantos? Yeah. 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 The mutability cantos actually were, they, they were found in Spencer's papers 10 years after he died. And they were published separately um, when he died in 1609. And they are clearly extremely important to Shakespeare's Tempest. Um, that is when they were found, Shakespeare um, uh, read them and loved them and absorbed them for the Tempest. Um, so they're, so if Shakespeare liked them, you can like them. How's that? Um, all right, well, why don't we look at some of the Amoretti? We can start with that. Um, let me just say about the Epithalamian, which is um, the poem that um, refers to Puck and Hobgoblins and um, the screech owl, screech owl screeching loud. Um, it is a poem for the bridal chamber. That's what its name means. And um, Spencer, at the very end, um, there are very few notes in this edition, which is, on the whole, I think a good thing, because notes are very distracting. But occasionally, it's helpful to know a little bit, which is why there's class. Um, at the very end, you will see that the last stanza of Epithalamian is um, a kind of what's called an envoy, a kind of postscript to the poem um, to the whole of the poem. Every stanza in the poem, the Epithalamian, ends with the words echo ring. Um, what the echo that rings through all of the Epithalamian um, is that phrase, echo ring. If you, if you notice the first stanza, um, so look, I'm helping you, getting you into your work, starting on page 282. Ye learned sisters, which have oftentimes been to me aiding others to adorn, whom ye thought worthy of your graceful rhymes, that even the greatest did not greatly scorn to hear their names sung in your simple lays, but joy it in their praise. And when ye list your own mishaps to mourn, which death or love or fortune's rack did raise, your string could soon to sadder tenor turn and teach the woods and waters to lament your droll, doleful dreariment. Now lay those sorrowful complaints aside, and having all your heads with garland crowned, help me mine own love's praises to resound. Nay, let the same of any be envied. So Orpheus did for his own bride, so I unto myself alone with sing. I think that's actually will sing. So I unto myself alone will sing. The woods shall to me answer, and my echo ring. Um, so... In the first two-thirds of the poem, the, the line endings for every stanza are some version of the woods shall me to answer, shall to me answer in my echo ring, or that all the woods may answer and your echo ring, or um, the woods shall to you answer and your echo ring, etc. Um, in the last few stanzas of the poem, 
the echoes um, stop ringing. That starts at around line 313. Um, the stanza begins at page 289, line 297. Now cease, ye damsels. So who are those damsels at the start and now here? The muses. So he calls upon the muses to start the poem um, and to have their, the echoes of their poems ring, ye learned sisters, which have oftentimes been to me aiding. And then at line um, 296, now cease ye damsels, your delights forepassed. Enough is it that all the day was yours, now day is done, and night is nighing fast. Now bring the bride into the <coughs> bridal bowers. Now night is come, now soon her disarray, and in her bed her lay. Lay her in lilies and in violets and silken curtains over her display and odored sheets and arras coverlets. Behold how goodly my fair love does lie in proud humility, like unto my eye, when as Jove her took in Tempe, lying on the flowery grass, twixt sleep and wake, after she weary was with bathing in the Acidalean brook. Now it is night, ye damsels may be gone, and leave my love alone, and leave likewise your former latest sing. The woods no more shall answer, nor your echoes ring. And then, so for the nighttime stanzas of this poem, um, every one of the nighttime stanzas ends with um, the woods not answering and the echoes not ringing. So that's all the stanzas of the poem until the envoy, the send-off, is um, the best way to translate envoy in English, um, where he addresses the song itself. Song made in lieu of many ornaments with which my love should duly have been decked, which, cutting off through hasty accidents, ye would not stay your due time to expect, but promised both to recompense, be unto her a goodly ornament, and for short time an endless monument. Um, so what happened was they were getting married, and he had... Um, paid a lot of money for a lot of gifts for the marriage to, um, to Elizabeth, his um, fiance and then wife. Um, but because of weather and, and some um, storms, uh, the, the gifts were delayed and didn't come in time for the marriage. So what he did was he wrote her this poem instead. Um, and it's a fantastic poem. It's been much studied numerologically. Um, I don't know whether um, it's worth uh, knowing some of the things that people think they found about it. People have counted how many long lines and how many short lines and how many stanzas and what the middle word is and so on. Um, Spencer does that to people, uh, maybe rightly or maybe wrongly. Um, but it's a beautiful poem, and it's made in lieu of the ornaments that he w wanted to give her but which hadn't arrived in time for the wedding. Um, and um, what he says about it is that this will be an endless monument to her. Um, do people know what that is called when you say that a poem will be an endless monument for the person you're writing the poem to? Doesn't Shakespeare do that? Uh-huh. So long lives this. This gives thing. life to thee. Good. Yeah. Um, in one of the sonnets, not, what is it, not marble 
nor sorry. No, it's uh, the something bronze of princes um, shall outlive this verse. Um, I don't think it's gilded statue though. Um, okay, but you recognize it as something that that poets do. It's called the eternizing trope, and it's basically uh, making eternal. So E T E R. N-I-Z-I-N-G. I doubt you could use it in Scrabble <laughs> or get away with it. Um, but um, maybe. Um, maybe you could. Um, so the idea is that the poem, that it's a good idea to um, be involved with a poet because a poet can, in, so, in one way or another, make you live forever, um, make you remembered forever. Um, and what he's saying is, so all this stuff I wanted to give you isn't here, but um, I'm really proud of this poem. I'm really proud of this song, um, which is my song to you and which I think and hope will last forever. Yeah. But it contradicts itself and for a short time and endless money. Yeah. Um, and that's something to think about <coughs> when you read the mutability cantos. Um, what the relation of time to eternity is. Uh, the way um, Jones does it is if you look at um, just a page before that, um, page 280. What he did was he printed the mutability cantos earlier then he skips a few stanzas from the Fairy Queen, and then he prints the very last two stanzas that Spencer ever wrote of the Fairy Queen. Um, but that actually comes, I'm going to bring in some of the intervening stuff on Wednesday, but that comes after the story of mutability, which you will read. Um, but then Spencer reflects on what he's just heard from the muses, let's say the story he's just told, but the story he's just experienced and reported to us, the story of mutability. Um, that story very briefly, um, the one of you who's read it, what, how would you do it in, in one sentence? Two sentences? Yeah, mutability claims that she is the greatest god of all. Um, that no matter, all the gods are having a contest to decide which god is greatest. And um, the various pagan gods, the Greek gods basically, um, describe how important they are. Love, everyone falls in love, so love is the greatest. No, Jove is the king of the gods, so he's the greatest, and so on. Um, mutability says no, um, everything always changes. Um, everything flows to quote, although Spencer wasn't, um, to quote the Greek philosopher Heraclitus, um, everything flows, nothing stays, nothing stays the same. And therefore, mutability is the greatest of all gods, and all the other gods um, are subject to her. So she, mutability, um, comes on stage to claim that she is the greatest of gods, the ruler of all gods. And then nature is set as the judge for this contest. And nature then renders her judgment. 
as to um, who the greatest of gods is and whether mutability really does have the title as the greatest of gods. Um, that's what I'll bring in. Um, then Spencer finishes telling the story. Nature gives her judgment and then disappears. Um, Whither no man wist, says Spencer. No man knows where nature went. Um, and then he begins a new canto of the Fairy Queen, and he writes two stanzas, and that's it. And these are the two stanzas, um, starting on the bottom, page 280. When I bethink me on that speech why leer of mutability, and well it weigh. So when I think on that speech, that recent speech of mutability, and well it weigh, me seems that though she all unworthy were of the heaven's rule, yet very sooth to say in all things else she bears the greatest sway. Um, one thing I should tell you about Spencer is that any decent edition of Spencer will give you Spencer in his spelling. And the reason is that he's writing a consciously archaic language. He's not, this is not late 16th century spelling and it's not late 16th century English that Spencer is writing. He wants his poetry to sound old. He wants it to look to his contemporary audience in 1596 or in 1590. He wants it to look to them as though they're reading something that is from an older age, maybe close to Chaucer, if not quite as far back as Chaucer. Um, so he also uses a vocabulary that no one else uses. Why Lear is a Chaucerian word. It's not a word that people are using in 1596 or 1599, but Spencer is. He wants, um, he wants this sort of sound of um, something coming from fairyland. Uh, these are the last two stanzas of the Fairy Queen. And the Fairy Queen is the Queen of the Fairies. Um, and the person she's eventually going to marry is um, Prince Arthur. That is Arthur of the Round Table. And so this is set in Arthurian times. Um, and so it's an ancient fairy tale past that the Fairy Queen is about. Um, and then at the very end of the story, there's this little contest in Ireland where Spencer lived, where the gods demand, um, as I said, um, uh, each god claims to be the most important god of all, and mutability speaks last. Nature renders her judgment, and then Spencer thinks about this scene. When I bethink me on that speech, why leer of mutability, and well it weigh, um, the speech mutability spoke in the story he just told. Um, what do we think way means there? Put on yeah. a scale. Yeah, put on a scale. And weigh it well. Um, consider it. Ponder it is what we would say. Everyone knows that ponder means literally to weigh. Um, now you know. <laughs> Everyone knows now that ponder means to weigh. When you ponder something, you weigh it. You consider it. You weigh it in your mind. You weigh it in the scales of your mind. Um, when I bethink me on that speech why leer of mutability and well it weigh, me seems, that is it seems to me, that though she all unworthy were of the heavens rule, yet very sooth to say in all things else she bears the greatest sway. 
So although mutability shouldn't rule the heavens, obviously we would agree with that if we were, if we believed in the heavens. What you don't want is a capricious and mutable God. What you want is to be able to count on God and count on his um, um, consistency, the consistency of his goodness. So that though she all unworthy were of the heavens rule, yet very sooth to say in all things else she bears the greatest sway, which makes me loathe this state of life so tickle. Um, that's a slightly funnyish word now, um, but we still have the idea of a ticklish situation, and a ticklish situation, you can use that in very serious contexts. That is, what to do about Iran's development of a nuclear weapon is a really ticklish problem. And it's not, oh, if I were to tickle it, it would giggle. Um, it's that you have to be very, very careful that, that, that things could go sour at any moment. So that's what he means by tickle here, which makes me loathe this state of life so tickle and love of things so vain to cast away. Um, how do you parse that? Just paraphrase that line. Meant to be kind of taken backwards, like to cast away a love of, like it's it's difficult because it makes sense in my head, but I don't really. Yeah, no, I know like, what you mean. When I read it, it sounded to me backwards, uh -huh. and I don't know how to like re-say it in such a way that it will actually make sense. Okay, um, yeah. I guess if you're saying tickle is something that's really serious, almost like a constancy there, I get what you're saying. So it's like he assumes that life is constant and life is stable, but his assumption is wrong and it's actually mutable and ever-changing and that makes him loathe life because he feels like it should be more stable. Yeah. Um, yeah. Emily. I mean, I don't know if this is right, but I saw the castaway as um, like describing how vain it was, like in terms of like we're comparing like what's Stable and what's like is there for you, or if that's a reflection of like something you really don't need. Okay, good. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he wants to cast away vain things. Yeah, he wants to cast away his love for vain things. So it makes me loathe this ticklish state of life, and makes me cast away my love for vain things. Um, that's how uh, um, I think. Um, Gabrielle, when you were trying to reverse it, that's how the reversal would go. Yeah, makes, I just couldn't figure out. Just makes me it. to cast away the love of vain things. Um, Gabriel, were you going to say something? Is that because he's recognized that everything changes, so there's no reason to fall in love with beautiful things because they'll just turn ugly, decay, or die? Yeah, that all things on earth um, decay and die. Um, love of any sublunary thing. Do people know what sublunary means? Under the moon. Under the moon, literally. Um, and generally, that's a word that you'll see about this life. Things in this world are often, we are, this is often um, described as the sublunary world, um, the world under the moon. The reason for that is that um, the old astronomy believed, as you know, that the Earth was the center of the universe, and that the spheres, that the planets each 
belonged to a different sphere, that there were a set of spheres. The first sphere is the sphere of the moon. Um, the second sphere is the sphere of um, Mercury, then Venus, then the sun, then Mars, and so on. Um, and that the spheres are unchanging and always moving in the same way. And it's only the moon and the things under it that change. So the moon is capricious because we see the phases of the moon. Um, the moon stands for change and mutation. And everything under the moon is governed by the moon's, by the moon's changes and mutations, hence tides and so on, governed by the moon. Um, so when you see the word sublunary, which you will, I bet you'll now see it all the time, one of those things. But when you see the word sublunary, what its astrological meaning is and um, how it came to be a word in, in English and in modern European languages was that it had an astrological meaning of the realm in which things are always changing. The moon and below is the realm, are the realm, constitute the realm where things are always changing. Um, above the moon, we get the absolute order of the spheres, um, rank on rank, moving in um, inflexible law. Um, so here on earth, she bears the greatest sway, and to love everything on earth, on, to love anything on earth, is to love something that's vain, something where your love can't last because it can't last and even if it could you can't last and love changes and love fades so when I think of that it seems that here she bears the greatest sway and that makes me loathe says Spencer in his old age um, that makes me loathe this state of life so tickle and love of things so vain to cast away um, it also suggests that it makes him loathe the love of things so vain. So it makes him cast away the love of things so vain, but also it makes him loathe the love of things that are as vain as they are. Um, vain to have, vain to cast away. Any kind of love on this earth is vain. Those things whose flowering pride so fading and so fickle, short time shall soon cut down with his consuming sickle. So all these things, they flower and they fade, and their pride is so fickle because what happens? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I know. Sometimes the questions are really easy. It's like the exam. Um, sometimes hard, sometimes easy. So that phrase, short time, you saw where? At the end. Of? The Epithalamian. Yes. Yes. Um, that is, be unto her a goodly ornament, and for short time, an endless monument. So time itself is short. What follows time is, ideally, eternity. Um, and a poem that can describe, or an attitude, a person that can describe time as short, <coughs> is a person with his or her eyes fixed on eternity. A poem that can describe time as short is a poem with its eyes fixed on eternity, on what happens after this world comes to an end, the world of mutability. 
Um, yeah. Sorry, so eternity isn't a constant thing? It is a future thing? Well, it is. So, um, you know the phrase or the book title, which actually comes from a song, um, actually comes from a poem by Kipling, From Here to, from here to Eternity. Um, so eternity there is also means kingdom come, um, which is, you know where that's from? Do people know where that phrase is from, kingdom come? Like kingdom come? Yeah, it will be done. Yeah. yeah. Um, so kingdom come isn't actually a place. It's may, may it be the case that your kingdom has come. Um, but eternity or kingdom come or the afterlife, those are more or less synonymous. Um, and there's a theological idea, which actually goes all the way back to Plato. So it's philosophical as well as theological. Um, of, but the, the theological um, way it's put is the difference between here's a word that you'll sometimes see as a synonym for eternal but isn't. And that word is sempiternal. Um, so sometimes people will use that as a kind of uh, $5 word for the eternal. Um, God in his sempiternal wisdom has blah, blah, blah. But generally, sempiternal means time that keeps going forever. That is, um, it's tick tock, tick tock, the, the clock is going on forever, it never stops. Uh, Physicists' time, at least until Einstein came, was sempiternal. That is, time would just be, if you set a clock going, and if you wound it enough, or if there was some mechanism by which it would keep going forever, it would just keep going forever. That wouldn't be the same thing as saying that it was an eternal clock, though, because eternal is, um, has the implication of something that transcends the world of time. It's not just time going on forever. It's outside of time or beyond time. So Plato describes, he gives a definition of time in his dialogue, the Timaeus, a very beautiful definition of time. Um, he says the demiurge, that is the god who created this world, created time which was the moving image of eternity. So time is the moving image of eternity. And the suggestion, of course, is that what's eternal is unchanging, absolutely reliable. What is time-bound is always changing. What's eternal is eternally the same. When Rome is called the eternal city, it's not, well, no matter what happens, some, some stuff will be going on in Rome. Um, it's that you can count on this city being the same forever. It somehow transcended time. Um, so short time gives way at the end of the epithalamian to eternity. That's the suggestion. Um, so here, these things on earth, which makes me loathe this state of life so tickle and love of things so vain to cast away, whose flowering pride so fading and so fickle, short time shall soon cut down with his consuming sickle. That's what the speech of mutability makes him feel. But then he begins to think on that which nature said. Then again I think on that which nature said. So this summarizes a little bit the speech that we'll look at on Wednesday of that same time 
when no more change shall be, but steadfast rest of all things firmly stayed upon the pillars of eternity that is contraire to mutability. So the time will come when you have the steadfast rest of all things on the pillars of eternity that is contraire to mutability. That's what nature promises, the time when short time comes to an end. For all that moveth doth in change delight. Great word there, delight. For all that moveth doth in change delight. But thenceforth all shall rest eternally with him that is the God of Sabaoth height. Oh, that great Sabaoth God, grant me that Sabbath's sight. Uh, there's no note there, but do people know what the difference between Sabaoth and Sabbath is? Anyone? Sabaoth is actually the word that gets translated as hosts when God is called the Lord of hosts. Um, and what Spencer is doing is making, um, taking that epithet for the biblical God and, um, and morphing it into the idea of Sabbath that he's called the Lord of Hosts, which is, that is, the leader of um, an unconquerable military power um, into this sort of sublime idea, which then becomes the idea of the Sabbath. Um, so that great Sabaoth God, that is the Lord, that great God of Hosts, grant me that Sabbath's sight the site of the eternal Sabbath when mutability finally comes to an end. So imagine this as we are clearly meant to imagine it, at least by the people who published it, as Spencer's last words, um, a prayer at the end of his life, certainly written near the end of his life, not published when he published the rest of the Fairy Queen. And he died um, three years after he completed um, the part of the Fairy Queen that he published. Um, but then there was this, which he hadn't published, which he wrote later as part of how he intended in one way or another to extend the Fairy Queen. And this feels elegiac. It feels like a leave-taking. And um, that's part of its beauty. And um, part of um, the way Spencer is thinking about the difference between time and eternity, which is his constant theme, is the relation of time to eternity. Um, do you remember the Garden of Adonis, Steve? I think so yeah. yeah, which is where everything would be happy in this garden. For, uh, Jones doesn't put that in here either, which I find surprising. But everything would be happy in this garden and have immortal bliss. Were it not the time their troubler is, um, all things that grow in this garden should have endless delight. Um, but no, time comes and destroys everything. Um, was your hand up? Yeah. Why was it published separately? So he died, and then this was found after his death. Well, um, do you know why he didn't publish it initially? Oh, because, yeah, um, the Fairy Queen was originally supposed to be, it's, it, 
the surviving version of the Fairy Queen is six books long. Uh, and these are really books. These, it's, it's really long. Um, it was in the Penguin edition, which you guys use, it was, or the Yale edition, it was what, like 1,400 pages? Um, so that some of that is notes, let's say 1,200 pages of Spencer. Um, and those are six books of the Fairy Queen. Come, so it's about 200 pages a book. Um, Spencer originally said it was going to be 24 books long. So that would then be um, 4,800 pages of poetry. Um, and he published the first three books in 1589. Um, and then they were well received, and six years later, he published books four through six, and they were well received. And presumably, after doing that, he was writing the next three books. Um, so he published three books, they were well received. Over the next few years, he wrote the next three books and published them, they were well received. And he announced that he was going to publish 24 books, six were out. Um, he started writing some more, and all that survives of what he wrote after that are the mutability cantos. And um, whether he wrote other stuff besides the mutability cantos, we will never know. No one says he did. No one saw it. Um, I would say it's unlikely. Um, I think it would have been saved in one way or another had he done so. But he was certainly writing more of the Fairy Queen, even if only a little bit more of the Fairy Queen. He was writing more of the Fairy Queen after the publication of the part that he published. Um, all right, let's look, since we've been talking about sonnet form, let's look at the Amoretti, which start. There are um, three of the sonnets of the Amoretti. I think one, two, four of the sonnets of the Amoretti are reprinted um, by Jones. I think there are 108 sonnets in the Amoretti. Um, and like the Epithalamian, it's, um, these are written to the woman that Spencer eventually marries, um, Elizabeth Spencer. Um, Spencer's love poetry is sort of interesting because they're about love succeeding. They're about love with a happy ending. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, that's not standard in sonnet cycles and not standard in love poetry. Love poetry is usually, um, well, as we saw in Wyatt and Sari and Petrarch about the cruel fair, um, about being in love with someone um, where your love for them is hopeless. Uh, Sidney, who was Spencer's patron and who we'll be reading next, um, wrote one of the great sonnet cycles in English, Astrophel and Stella. It's also probably the most complex. Um, that is psychologically complex. It's, um, it's really an amazing book an amazing account of the relationship of Philip Sidney, hence Astra Phil, which literally means star lover, um, and Stella, which means star. Yeah. So Phil Ip loves this woman whom he calls Stella. Um, he's the star lover. She's the star. Um, and as you will see, there's, if you do the reading, because there'll be an exam, um, as you'll see, the, the story told in Astrophel and Stella is, is, is very complex. The story told in the Amoretti is um, much more a happy story. 
um, but still deep and complex. Um, look at the sonnet call, um, that's numbered here. It's on page 282, numbered 144. Um, the numbers in this book are the number of poems. That is the way the Oxford anthologies work is that the poems are numbered from 1 to... Um, whatever they <coughs> Um to 544. Um, so the numbers, the only reason, the only place these numbers are relevant is in this actual anthology. Um, they're not, they have no other rel relevance except the way they're numbered in the anthology. Um, I'm pretty sure this is actually the 72nd sonnet in, um, in the Amoretti. Anyone know what Amoretti means? What is it? Cookies. Little Loves. Little Loves, yeah. Did you say cookies? I didn't say cookies. <laughs> um, yes, Little Loves. Um, often in art history, you will hear little cupids called amoretti, um, little loves flying around. Um, in this case, what it means is the sonnets themselves are like little loves, little declarations of love. Um, someone want to read? One day I wrote her name. Yeah, Gabrielle. One day I wrote her name upon the strand, but came the waves and washed it away. Again I wrote it with a second hand, but came the tide and made my pains my pains his prey. Vain man, she said, that dost in vain assay a mortal thing so to immortalize. For I myself shall like to this decay, and eke my name be wiped out likewise. Not so, quoth I, let baser things devise to die in dust, but you <coughs> shall live by fame. My verse, your virtues rare shall eternize, eternize. Eternize. And in the heavens write your glorious name, where, when as death shall all the world subdue, our love shall live <coughs> and later life renew. Okay. <coughs> Good. Um, so, there's your word, eternize, by the way. Um, <laughs> so, first of all, Spencer invented his own rhyme scheme. Um, for sonnets. Um, I think these are actually still called Spencerian sonnets. They're 14 lines long, but what's the rhyme scheme? <laughs> yes. From the person who did this before me, uh, <laughs> A B A B B C B C C D C C D E E. Yeah. So once again, what you have is um, five different rhymes in the sonnet, which is what we notice in Petrarch and what we notice in Shakespeare. Um, that is the couplet, the end of the sonnet, the last line is always or almost always the E rhyme. So fourteen lines, five different. Um, rhymes. Shakespeare, you'll often um, get to F and G. That is, you'll have A, B, A, B, C, D, C, D, E, F, E, F, G, G, um, sometimes in Shakespeare. Eh, most of the time in Shakespeare. Um, but Spencer, like Petrarch, is, is using five <coughs> different rhymes in the sonnet. Um, what's the difference between the way Spencer does it? Do people remember the typical Petrarchan sonnet rhyme scheme? Yeah, Barbara. And then, and then 
No, it's A B B A A B B A. That gets repeated, and then something like C D E C D E, or C D E E D C, or something like that. Um, but you get four A's and four B's in Petrarch, um, and two C's, two D's, and two E's. That that tends to be um, the census of rhymes in Petrarch. Um, in Sydney, you get. I mean, in Spencer, you get A, B, A, B. So how many A's? Two. Then B, C, B, C. So how many B's do we now have? And then C, D, C, D. So how many C's do we have? How many D's? And how many E's? Two. Right. So in Petrarch, you have four A's and four B's. In Spencer, you have four B's, you have two A's, four B's, four, and four C's, and then two um, D's and E's. Um, so that's different. Um, Spencer, the rhymes are really interwoven with each other in a way that they're not in Petrarch. Each stanza is um, giving you the rhymes that are going to appear in the next stanza. So if you just look, you have A, B, A, B, and then... B, C, B, C, and then C, D, C, D, and then E, E. Um, what effect does that give you if you frame it? Let's write this down. Um, so you have A, B, A, B, B, C, B, C, um, C, D, C, D, E, E. Um, so quatrain, 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 couplet. Yeah. I know that's not how you're supposed to break it out, but it almost gives you another couplet in the middle. Yeah. With the two Bs together. Yes. So you get A, B, A, B, B. And at the same time as you're getting A, B, A, B, B, you're also starting a new, it's sort of like bricklaying. There's an overlap, B, C, B, C, C. And at the same time as you get that, so you get this couplet here that's occurring at an overlap, and you get C, D, C, D. And then you don't get D, E, you get E. So here there's a break, but what does the break give you? It gives you a couplet. And the couplet is kind of more conclusive because it doesn't come the way the other couplets do or pseudo-couplets do as an overlap between things. Um, so that's something, that's an effect, that's exactly right, that's an effect that Spencer um, uh, really, really, really internalized. The sense of couplets that don't end the sonnet but keep it going because they're simultaneously the end of one stanza and the beginning of the next one. And so that somehow what's happening mentally is we are parsing this simultaneously as A, B, A, B, B as a five-line stanza, and A, B, A, B, B, C, B, C, et cetera. It's the kind of thing you do when you're listening to a clock and you can't decide whether to hear something as a tick or as a talk. Well, you guys don't know. Do you know about tick-tocking clocks? <laughs> You've seen them in the movies? Um, so, you know, it's the same sound. 
but no one can hear it as the same sound. Everyone hears tick-tock or some version of tick-tock, even though the sound is always exactly the same. It's just... No one can hear it that way. Everyone will always, if they listen, start alternating um, the onset and the concluding sound. Tick-tock, tick-tock. In all languages, by the way, it tends to go that way. It's it-ah. Um, there's something about um, the phonemes that is always first and ah is always second. So tick-tock, tick-tock, tick-tock. But you might be listening to someone else and say, I can't stand that tick-tocking clock anymore. And they will have heard the same thing. They'll say, yeah, I know what you mean. But what you won't know is that what you're hearing is tick, they're hearing is talk. And what you're hearing is talk, they're hearing is tick. Um, there's no way to know that. Um, but if you try to hear it, or if you try to switch, have you ever tried doing that, switching the tick-tock? Um, have you ever tried on a stair machine to switch which foot you're counting on? Um, so you can do it. It's something that, that um, you have to kind of get in sync with yourself in order to then pass the baton from one from the tick to a tick instead of from a tick to a talk, or from your left foot to your right instead of just doing it on your left foot every time it goes down. Um, so that passing the baton feeling is what happens three times in Spencerian sonnet. A, B, A, B, B, C, or is it A, B, A, B, B, C, B, C, C, D, C, D, and then, oh, a very clear E, E, without having to worry at all that it's connected to the previous stanza. So there's kind of tension and release in a Spencerian sonnet that has to do with the way he interweaves rhymes together. Look at... Um, and what he does with that is something that we'll um, look at in a second. But go back to um, the stanzas from the Fairy Queen. Let's just look at, um, again, on page 280, the um, two mutability stanzas. When I bethink me on that speech, why leer of mutability and well it way, me seems that though she all unworthy were of the heaven's rule, yet very sooth to say in all things else, she bears the greatest sway, <coughs> which makes me loathe this state of life so tickle, and love of things so vain to cast away, whose flowering pride so fading and so fickle, short time shall soon cut down with his consuming sickle. Then again I think on that which nature, I'm going to pronounce it the way he did, then again I think on that which nature said, um, that's still how, um, uh, I'm not sure said is pronounced that way in Ireland, but where we say says, you know, how it's an Americanism to write S-E-Z, um, says I to myself, says I. Um, in Ireland, people say says. Um, this is what he says. Um, so then again, I think on that which nature said, of that same time when no more change shall be, but steadfast rest on all things firmly stayed upon the pillars of eternity that is contrary to mutability. For all that moveth doth in change delight, but thenceforth all shall rest eternally with him that is the God of Sabbath height. Oh, that great spouse, God, grant me that Sabbath's sight. So what's the rhyme scheme of the Spencerian stanza?
no helpful markings? <laughs> Isn't it mostly the same? Sort of the same. Yeah, what is it? So the first, the first five lines are the same. Then, what do you get? Um, C B C C. Uh, Wait, no. Because really? sway in a way. Does Wyler? How, how do you pronounce Wyler again? Um, <coughs> it's um. To pronounce, why you can hear it's pronouncing with were. It's rhyming okay. with were. Yeah, you're right. So it's A, B, A, B, B, C, B, C, C. Or you may want to do it as A, B, A, B, C, B, C, C. Or A, B, A, B, B, C, B, C, C. Again, there's this interweaving. There's this interweaving. And what happens with the interweaving, there's a kind of spring-like quality to the stand, to what's called a Spenserian stanza. Um, people who, later poets who wrote in Spenserian stanzas include Keats, Shelley, and Wordsworth. Um, those are probably the greatest <coughs> later poets who wrote in Spenserian stanzas. A lot of poets did, but those are probably the greatest ones. Yeah? Can you include the last line in the rhyme scheme? Why not? Because it's not iambic pentameter? It still rhymes, though. Yeah, but it's just like, it's, it's offset a little bit. It doesn't really sound exactly right. Yeah, it's, it's not iambic pentameter, and we'll get to that in a minute. Um, but it does rhyme. So the question of the relation of rhyme to meter is one that comes up. But he's very careful to rhyme it. I mean, just look up that page. Reward, regard, mollify, cruelty, or cruelty, aspect, reject, fickle, sickle, height, sight, and so on. Yeah, but then you get two quatrains in this like, extra line that rhymes with everything. Well, two quartets? Quatrains. Quatrains. Yeah. Yeah, but it does rhyme. That's, can you say that it rhymes? Yeah. yeah can you, should you note that it's what's called an Alexandrine? Yes, you should. Um, an Alexandrine is a 12-syllable line. Um, in English, it's usually 12 syllables of iambic. Of, um, it's usually um, iambic hexameter. That is, it's still iambic, but there's an extra foot. So that makes it iambic hexameter instead of pentameter. Um, six feet to the line instead of five. Um, what you will, the reason for Alexandrines is they were, um, the line that French poetry was written in. And um, the name comes from a medieval French poem, um, an anonymous French poem about the exploits of Alexander the Great. And people who started writing in that form called it the form or the verse of Alexander, that is, of the poem about Alexander. And then it came to be called the Alexandrine. So in English poetry, you will find Alexandrine lines. Pope makes fun of them in the essay on criticism. He talks about um, bad poets, and then he says, um, and then at the end um, of the only couplet fraught with some unmeaning thing they call a thought, then in the last and only couplet fraught with some unmeaning thing they call a thought, a needless Alexandrine ends the song that 
like a wounded snake drags its slow length along. Um, so one, that one extra word. One one extra. <laughs> yeah, but do you hear how it does that? That like a wounded snake drags its slow length along. Doesn't it feel like too long? No. Then at the last and only couplet fraught with some unmeaning thing they call a thought. A needless Alexandrine ends the song that like a wounded snake drags its slow length along. Okay. Do you hear the difference? Yeah, actually. It's weird. Yeah. Um, how did you notice it? That those lines were longer? I'm not could you? I, had to, I, I looked up Spencer. Okay. <laughs> well, no, that's, that's a way of doing it too. Um, okay, but the point is there's a reason for the Alexandrine. So what you get is in the first five lines, you get a kind of A, B, A, B, B, and that finds a little bit conclusive. That feels a little bit conclusive. Um, but it's also like a spring being compressed. You get to the B, but then it explodes out again because we get B, C, B, C, C. So in one sense, you get this really interesting symmetry, A, B, A, B, B, which let's just call it 1, 2, 1, 2, 2 is the form of that of those five lines, the first five lines. The form of the last five lines, it's a nine-line stanza. The form of the last five lines is B, C, B, C, C. So we will say here, again, it's one, two, one, two, two. So what's two for the first five lines is one for the last five lines. That's that tick-tock feel again where you have to turn the talk into a tick, or the poem turns a talk into a tick in order to give you the last five lines. So you, you can see how that happens. Sort of here you can see it abstractly. If you read a lot of Spencer, which I'm sure you will for Wednesday, um, you'll internalize how that happens. But there's a kind of compression. You get to this kind of thing that the first five lines are bracing against, that couplet, A, B, A, B, B. And that sort of feels like a halting place. But then the B presses out again to B, C, B, C, C. Now, how do you just prevent that from going on forever, which would get boring? Well, the answer is the C, the last C, is this 12-syllable line where everything else is 10 syllables. This Alexandrine, where everything else is simply iambic pentameter, which gives you a real sense of the ending at the end of the stanza. That really gives you a sense of, okay, this sums it up, this is the end of the stanza, now the stanza is over. So Spencer had an incredible feel for what the interaction of rhymes with stanzas was like and um, where it was that you could feel what rhymes do. What rhymed poetry does is rhymes always propel you. At least the, the um, um, onset rhyme is propelling you because you have to wait for its resolution. You have to wait for the word that's going to rhyme with it. Rhyme is something in poetry that purely metrical poetry doesn't have. Metrical poetry isn't going to, simply through its very form, leave you waiting for something that, is, that, that has to come and that you're waiting for the coming of. Metrical poetry, you can end at any line. 
Whereas in a rhymed poem, if you have the rhyme poem or something like A, B, C, A, B, C, A, B, C, you can't just end it at B. Everyone is going to wait for the C rhyme for the conclusion. So Spencer is really good at using that effect of rhyme, of making you wait for the other shoe to fall. It sort of falls here, but the same place the shoe is falling here, it's also picking up. And the other shoe really falls at the second C. And as I say, that's the Alexandrine. Um, short time shall soon cut down with his consuming sickle. So just go back to the sonnet in which he writes her name upon the strand. What does strand mean there? Beach. Beach, yeah. So one day I wrote her name upon the strand. They, so what do we know they were doing? Yeah, it's, it's pretty good at setting the scene. One day I wrote her name upon the strand, but came the waves and washed it away. Again I wrote it with a second hand, but came the tide and made my pains his prey. Um, so notice the time is expanding there. The first time he wrote her name, but it was too close to the water. Um, so a wave came and washed it away. So he wrote it a little bit higher up on the beach. We've all done that, right? But the tide came in. And even what looked safe um, turned out not to be when the tide came in. But came the tide and made my pains his prey. Vain man, said she, that dost in vain assay a mortal thing so to immortalize. So who's she talking about? A mortal thing so to immortalize. Wait, Emily? Well, is she saying, I don't want you to do this, basically? Like, you don't need to, like, immortalize me? Um, yeah, I think so. Gabriel. I think that this person isn't the woman that she's writing, he's writing about, but rather it's Achilles' mother. Because Achilles' mother was a senum, and it says, and then later on he's writing about how you will live by fame, and my verse will eternalize you. Uh-huh. basically what happened to Achilles. Okay. Um, interesting, and that may indeed be on his mind, but he's explicitly, all these sonnets are to Elizabeth Spencer. Um, so just think, just let's just stipulate that he's walking with her and he writes her name Elizabeth in the sand. Um, Gabrielle? I think, I don't know if it's like whether or not she wants him to do it, but I think she's calling him silly in a very, in a playful way. Yeah. Like I don't think she's like yelling at him, but I think She's like joking with him, but by calling him like vain and saying like, "You're doing some, you're that's impossible. Why do you keep doing this?" But he's so love struck that he's like, "No, no, no, I like, I'll make it work. I'll make it happen." Yeah. Okay. Good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's like the tides will always come in. It's uh -huh. just some. Um, I guess in that way they're sort of eternal, though changing. But that's okay. So it's like he's trying to immortalize her through writing her name in the sand, but it's counterintuitive because, like, someone could walk on the sand, like, tides could come, like, her name will never be able to be immortalized in the sand. Okay, good. Yeah. And also, not just her name, but, like, her, um, she was saying that, um, like, just like her name is washed away, she'll be washed away by time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, good. Yeah. You also have the double meaning of secondhand as a part of the time conceit? Uh-huh. Yeah, okay, good. Um, I don't know that they had second hands then. 
something that well, it's something to find out. But it, is, <laughs> it is very clever. Um, but what do you? Let me just ask this: What do you make of this echoing? Vain man, said she. Not so, quoth I. That is, notice the structure of line five and line nine are, at least the first four words are the same. Vain man, said she, that dust in vain assay. Not so, quoth I, let baser things devise. Um, what do you make of those, of the parallel in the first four syllables? Yeah. Um, well, it makes it more of a response. She makes two statements. Uh -huh. A, vain man, and B, I will die. And he says, not so. And so that is both a response to her first statement, I'm not silly, and to her second statement, you're not going to die. Uh -huh. And you might die, but I'll make sure you don't really die. Yeah. Okay, good. Um, all right, let's stop there. And um, I feel certain that you will read all the Spencer there is to read in this little book, this tiny, tiny, tiny selection of Spencer. How, what? It's, it's like, no, no, no. The, the amount of Spencer in this little book 